0: The word of the Lord comes to us today from 1 Peter chapter 2. So I invite you to turn to 1 Peter 2. We'll be reading verses 4 through 10. If you have an ESV Bible, that should be page 1014. Here Peter comes to the end of the first section of his letter to suffering believers throughout Asia Minor. So I'd invite you... Once more, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? Beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God And a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. As they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Who called you out of darkness. Into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. But now. You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word and pray that it may give honor to Your Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. You alone know what You desire to say to us today. And so would You minister uh, through the power of your spirit, your word, that it may produce fruit in our, our hearts and our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis imagines what a demon might write to another demon that he's training as an apprentice as he's giving his apprentice demon advice and instruction about how best to bring the human subject to whom the demon apprentice has been assigned ultimately to hell. So one experienced tempter training another. And in letter number 12, Screwtape, the experienced tempter, writes to Wormwood, the apprentice, and he tells him that He doesn't necessarily need to lead his human subject into great sins in order to bring him to hell. In fact, all he needs to do is set him on a trajectory that is away from God. And little by little, the accumulation of distance from God over years will do the job. Now, at the end of that letter, he says, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. If you think about it, that makes sense. If we were suddenly to commit a great sin, it might awaken our conscience and at least begin the process of repentance. But little sins, little moves away from God that accumulate day by day over a long period of time, the conscience can easily adjust to those. And after years of day after day making small decisions that lead us farther and farther away from God, perhaps we might look around one day and realize my Christian faith doesn't really mean much of anything to my life. Does that happen? Yes. Now from God's perspective, of course, theologically, we'd point to many many passages of Scripture that indicate God will lose none of His own people. He will lose none whom He has chosen from before the foundation of the world, and yet we have to deal with our perspective. And from our perspective, it does in fact happen that those who profess faith in Christ do abandon that profession, or they walk away from it. Over time, or maybe they still hold to the outward profession but give no evidence of the reality in their lives over time. What causes that? I think there are two things that, either separately or perhaps taken together, can often lead to that sad reality of the gentle slope toward hell. One would be the mundane nature of life. We talk about lofty ideas in church about God and Christ and redemption, and a coming kingdom. And yet we live our lives in the day-to-day mundane realities of this world. We fill out paperwork, and we change diapers, and we have to try to get along with a spouse. And if our faith is attracted to the spectacular, and yet we live day-to-day in the ordinary, it's very possible that that faith could wither over time. On the other hand, suffering can do this to us there are times when we suffer and it drives us away from god because perhaps deep down we feel a profound sense of disappointment with god himself why would god allow this to happen to me what does god have against me that this would occur and we begin to doubt his love for us and instead of turning to him we turn away Now, it is possible that some in this room are on the gentle slope toward hell today. But even if you're not, you want to make sure that that day never comes that you are. So how do we fight the slow fade of faith? I think we fight it by regularly engaging our hearts with the glorious truths of the gospel. We hold up the gospel, and like a diamond with multiple facets, we let each facet of its beauty shine forth into our hearts, and we do it over and over and over again from every conceivable angle. That's what Peter's doing here for us. He's holding up once more a glorious truth of the gospel, specifically the truth that tells us who we are in Jesus Christ. He holds it up before our eyes so that we can gaze at its beauty and once more see our hearts engaged. And when we know who we are in Christ, the mundane realities of life become the arena for gratitude and service to God. When we know who we are in Christ, the sufferings of life do not drive us from God but toward Him because our faith in His love for us cannot waver. Peter shows us in this text how to fight for faith. No believer can take in the profound reality of what the Bible says about our identity in Christ and be unaffected by it. So if I could summarize what Peter is saying in this section and indeed throughout all of chapter 1, verse 3 to here, the first major section of his letter, if I could just summarize all of that. As he's writing to believers in Asia Minor who are suffering for their faith and they're facing trial and difficulty and social marginalization, he is telling them, know who you are and live in the light of it. So who are we in Christ? If we are in Christ, who are we? Peter's going to tell us here three things. First, in Christ, we are God's temple and a holy priesthood. In Christ, we are God's temple and a holy priesthood, verses 4 through 6. The Bible is the story of an exile and a return. It begins in the Garden of Eden. The very first temple, the very dwelling place of God where Adam and Eve are created to dwell with God in his presence, where they are made priests in his temple, stewards of his holy place who are to minister before him as his covenant partners. But with the entrance of sin into the world, humanity is exiled from the holy place and God places an angel and a flaming sword at the entrance of the garden to guard the way so that humanity cannot get back in. Now, there are other times throughout the old testament story where god sets up his place among the people of israel but even in doing so he is communicating something very important because his place his dwelling place is no longer a vast garden where man is welcome it's been narrowed down to a single cube shaped room at one end of the tabernacle or at one end of the temple and even though it dwells in the midst of the people of Israel, it remains off-limits to humanity. There's a veil that separates the holy of holies from everywhere else. And on that veil is woven the image of the cherubim that stood guard at the Garden of Eden to tell man, you must stay out, for this is God's holy dwelling place. And any, any breach, any violation of God's rules is met with a sudden outburst of His judgment upon the offender. And so the Old Testament story communicates to us that we are on the outside, that we are exiled due to our sin from the holy place in which God dwells until the moment that Jesus Christ hanging on the cross of Calvary breathes his last and the veil of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom and with that action God is saying to us Welcome home. This is where you belong. You are welcome back into my holy place, my sons and my daughters. Peter is telling us in this text that reality about us. That we are the recipients of the highest honor imaginable. And that honor, of course, begins with the honor that God has given to Jesus Christ himself. In verse 4, Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That word precious could also be translated honored, chosen and honored. So Peter is picturing Jesus here as a living stone. Living because he's raised from the dead, but, but a stone because, as Peter will quote, three different texts from the Old Testament referring to the cornerstone. The first stone... Laid in the foundation of a new temple, the stone with which every other stone that is built on the temple must be aligned. Peter draws from that Old Testament image to tell us Jesus Christ is a living stone rejected by men, but chosen and honored in the sight of God. Where is he getting these terms? He's getting them from the the text of the Old Testament that he's about to quote. Notice that uh, in verse 7 he quotes... From Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In its original context, Psalm 118 is a psalm of the Davidic king who has been opposed by the nations. The nations, rather than submitting to his rule, are opposing and rebelling against him. And yet, because of the Lord's power with him, this king has gone into battle and has been victorious. And so the stone rejected by the builders, the one that was thrown aside, has been exalted over them and vindicated to their shame. Jesus quotes that text in the passage we heard earlier from Matthew 21. He quotes that very verse in reference to the fact that the builders, the leadership of Israel, would reject him, hand him over to death, and yet God would exalt him and make him the very cornerstone of a new temple. So he is rejected by men, but chosen and honored in the sight of God. Now, those words chosen and honored are precious. They come from uh, the quote from Isaiah 28, uh, verse 16, that is quoted in verse 6, where God says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In the context, Isaiah is declaring a coming judgment against Jerusalem, That one day this city will be destroyed because of the corrupt leadership of its leaders. And yet in the midst of all the rubble on the other side of judgment, God is about to lay a stone of a new temple, of a new Jerusalem, and begin building a new people. And that cornerstone would be the Messiah himself. The one chosen and honored in the sight of God. So God has conferred the highest honor imaginable on Christ. And what is true of Christ is true of all those who are in Christ. As as Peter goes on to say, he's getting to his main point then in verse 5. He says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If Christ is the cornerstone of a new temple, of a new spiritual house, then we are living stones built on top of the foundation, aligned with Christ, so that collectively we become God's very dwelling place. God dwells among His new covenant people. Now, this is true of us as individuals Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 6.19 that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And he uses that to argue for why the Corinthians should not commit sexual immorality. To preserve the purity of God's temple. But Peter's not addressing the individualized aspect of that here. He's speaking of the corporate reality of the church. What Paul also does in 1 Corinthians 3.16 where he says to the Corinthians, do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple and that God dwells among you? Peter is saying that that we in Christ are stones built up to be the very dwelling place of God. We who were formerly exiled from God's presence are now welcome to be his own dwelling place. But there's actually more. Because what does every temple need? Every temple needs priests to serve in it. And so Peter mixes the metaphor here. Notice again in verse 5, he says, we are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are priests in Christ, in the new temple of God. As priests, we are those who are brought near to God. We are those who are welcomed into His presence. We are those who are given the stewardship of offering up sacrifices to him, But those sacrifices, Peter says, are not animal sacrifices. They are spiritual sacrifices. What in the world is Peter talking about here? There are other references in the New Testament we could point to. Hebrews 13, 5 mentions the sacrifice of praise. Philippians 4, 18 and Hebrews 13, 16 speak of God being pleased with our sacrifices of giving to meet the needs of others. Romans 12, 1, Paul says we are to offer our bodies themselves as living sacrifices unto God. Our spiritual sacrifices, in other words, I think are, are the totality of our lives lived before God in Christ. Everything that we do, all of our lives and our works are presented to God as spiritual sacrifices from His holy priests And God is pleased with what we have to offer. Did you see that in verse 5? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Acceptable, pleasing. Now, why are they pleasing? Is it because our works and our lives come before God with utter purity, without any stain of sin or any corruption of motive in the heart? No. Even our best works are not free of the stain of sin in this present age. The works we do are pleasing to God because they are works done through Jesus Christ. The mediator between God and man makes our works acceptable. The great theologian John Calvin argued that believers in Christ experience a double justification. On the one hand, we ourselves are justified before God. We are declared right by faith alone because of the righteousness of Christ counted to us. But Calvin said there's also another justification, and that is the justification of our works before God. That is, the works we do, even though still stained with sin in this age, are presented to God through Jesus Christ and God is pleased with them. Think forward into the future. Think about the day when you stand before God. When you see God, if if you are in Christ... And God says to you at the end of all things, well done, good and faithful servant. Does anything else matter at that moment? Does anything about the present life that you're going through now matter? If you could get at that point and look back over a life that was full of all the turmoil you're experiencing now, plus whatever's to come in the future, if you were to look over a road that, that twisted and turned, but finally made its way to that point where you stood in the radiance of God's approval, wouldn't you look back and say, everything was worth it? Absolutely everything was worth it. Because nothing matters more than knowing God's approval. And Peter says, in Christ, you have it. In Christ, it is yours. Now, you may say, I don't feel very much like a living stone in God's holy temple. I don't feel very much like a priest who presents to God sacrifices that are pleasing to him. But if you are in Christ, God has declared it is so. And what determines reality? Your feelings or the Word of God? At the end of history, of all the human opinions that have ever been held about you, including your own, of all the the human and non-human, I should say, opinions that have been held about you, including your own, there is only one that matters and that is God's opinion of you Peter tells us that in Christ we are God's temple and a holy priesthood and that means we are supremely honored by God because of his son Jesus Christ so that's who we are first in this passage second Peter tells us in Christ we are destined for vindication at the final judgment In verses 7 and 8, in Christ we are destined for vindication at the final judgment. The honor that God has conferred on us in Christ is presently not an honor that is publicly evident. It's not widely demonstrated to all, is it? That we are those who are welcomed into God's dwelling place as His priests And if it never becomes public, if it never becomes demonstrable reality, then it really isn't real. It's not a true honor. There must be a final judgment that is to come. There must be a day when God makes a distinction between those who are His and those who are not. Peter tells us in verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe. He's referring to an honor. If you, if you just look back up to the previous verse that he's quoting, Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, the end of that, whoever believes in Him, the cornerstone, will not be put to shame. To be put to shame in Scripture is a reference to the final judgment. It's a reference to being shamed before God and before all people throughout all history as you are cut off from God forever. It is the final standing where all things are sorted out by God. And so by telling us we have honor from God, that means that at the final judgment we will stand vindicated. And those who oppose us, those who oppose our gospel, those who were making life difficult for Peter's audience in uh, the first century Roman Empire, those who were marginalizing them from society because of their refusal to bow down to the local gods, those who were making it difficult for them to find employment or, or to, to have a good business or to find a spouse, those who are making life difficult, they will receive shame when that day comes. The verdict on unbelievers uh, is given in verses 7 and 8, where we've already seen Peter quotes from Psalm one eighteen twenty two. 22. the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone to their shame. And verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Here's the third cornerstone verse from the old testament from isaiah eight fourteen, where god himself identifies himself as a stone who will cause stumbling among the people of israel peter clearly identifying jesus as that stone therefore identifying jesus with god himself and showing that those who reject christ are stumbling toward judgment a judgment that is to come And that division, Peter outlines at the end of verse 8, is based on this. Look at the end of verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. What makes a difference, what makes the ultimate difference between honor and shame at the final judgment, is what our response is to the word of the gospel. Do we obey that word? Or do we disobey it? Peter says those who disobey the word are stumbling toward judgment. And then he adds a mysterious phrase right at the end. As they were destined to do. This is a hard teaching. But Peter seems to be saying here that they were destined not only to stumble, but they were destined to disobey the word. What Paul says in Romans 9.18... Peter seems to be applying here, God has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. That doesn't ever remove human responsibility in the Scripture. We are responsible for our actions. But there is a high, high view of God's sovereignty here, that He is sovereign even over the unbelievers who oppose us. Similar to what Peter says in the book of Acts when he speaks of uh, Herod and Pontius Pilate And the Jews and the people, uh, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, they had all gathered together against God's anointed one to do whatever his plan had foreordained would come to pass. Even the enemies of God have been written into the story to play their part. Now, why would Peter even bring that up here? I think it is because it can be a profoundly comforting doctrine a comforting teaching to know that God is absolutely sovereign and that no amount of opposition to us can succeed because God is sovereign over absolutely all things. Therefore, He guarantees that He will honor us the way He has promised at the final judgment. When the Supreme Court issues a decision, they always end it with the words, It is so ordered. That's how every Supreme Court decision ends. And someone wondered the other day, if Supreme Court justices order pizza, do they say that to one another afterwards? It is so ordered. Um, It is so ordered. It gives a note of finality, doesn't it? Weightiness. As though to say, this matter is settled, and there is no more appeal, because the Supreme Court has spoken. Now, of course, we understand that Supreme Court really means Supreme Court in the constitutional system of the United States of America. Beyond that, there are other courts. There is at least one. There is one Supreme Court, absolutely Supreme Court. There is one verdict that will be rendered on the last day. And it will come from God himself. And when that verdict is rendered, it will be so ordered and there will be absolutely no appeal afterward. If you hold the conviction that that day is coming and that on that day in Christ you will stand vindicated, can you go out and share the gospel with your unbelieving neighbor even if you're afraid he might reject you? Can you hold fast to a traditional sexual ethic and uphold the ideal of one man one woman for life as marriage even though that that ethic is being mocked now by late night comedians Can you hold fast to teachings that are 2000 years old even if it costs you your job or if it costs you relationships the answer is yes, you can. You can, because think about all those situations and think about a thousand others that are like them. In every situation, what is really happening? You are standing before a human court. And that court has the power to condemn you. But Paul asked the question in Romans 8, 34. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Whatever the human court in any sphere of your life says about you today, the final verdict is coming. And on that day, every other verdict will be overturned. So can you stand fast for truth in the face of suffering? If you hold that conviction, yes, you can. In Christ, we are destined for vindication at the final judgment. And Peter tells us one more thing about who we are. In verses 9 and 10, he tells us third, in Christ we are sharers in Israel's blessings. In Christ we are sharers in Israel's blessings. Israel has a privileged place in God's story. They're God's chosen people. They're they're, uh, blessed with life in the land. They're given God's covenant. Uh, They're given the priesthood and the mediation. God's temple, His dwelling place. And they are called by God to represent Him to the world. Now, Peter, in verses uh, 9 and 10, he is going to pile up Old Testament references, even as he's already been doing, but he's going to pile up more and more Old Testament references to make a point that believers in Christ are sharers in those very blessings that God has given to Israel. Uh, notice verse 9. But you, in contrast to those who stumble toward judgment, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter is drawing from two main Old Testament passages here. One of those is Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. This is where Israel is brought to the foot of Mount Sinai, having been Rescued out of Egypt. And here God is about to enter into covenant with them. We heard earlier in the service these words read as God meets with them there. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. So Peter says, a people for his own possession. Uh, You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, Peter says, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Peter says, holy nation. Peter has drawn three terms from Exodus 19 to communicate that we are, in Christ, the redeemed people of God who are called to represent Him and belong to Him. Privilege. Then, he's not done, he's also referring to Isaiah 43, verses 20 and 21, which read the, uh, sorry, context, God is giving a prophecy of uh, rescue of his people from Babylon in the future, and he says in, in those verses in Isaiah 43, the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. Chosen race, actually, in the Greek translation, of the Old Testament, as Peter says here in verse 9. The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Or as Peter concludes, verse 9, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So by putting Exodus 19 and Isaiah 43 together and saying this is all true of you who are in Christ Peter is saying, you are sharers in Israel's blessings. You are sharers in their election by God. You are sharers in their privileged position and in their calling to declare His mighty acts to the world, to represent who He is to all the nations. In other words, we are not only honored by God, we are also called to give honor to God with our lives. We are called, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is the purpose for which God created us. We long for that. We long to know that the things we're doing day to day are contributing to something that's bigger than ourselves. Throw your life into living for the honor of God, to making known The praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter's not even through. In verse 10, notice what he says. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here he's referring to the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet called to marry a prostitute named Gomer. And Gomer bore three children. The the text actually seems to indicate that the second and third were not Hosea's biological offspring. The second child was a daughter, and Hosea was commanded to name her No Mercy as a sign that God's mercy on Israel was about to run out. And then the third child was a son, and God commanded Hosea to name him Not My People. As a sign that God was about to cast Israel off when he sent them from the land. And yet, in chapter 2 of the book of Hosea, as the prophets often do, they mix prophecies of judgment with prophecies of a coming redemption beyond judgment. And in Hosea 2.23, God says, And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And thus, the story of Hosea's children is a vivid picture of the exile and redemption of Israel. The mercy of God that would bring his people back to their inheritance. Peter is telling us if God could do that for Israel, then he can do that for Gentiles who did not know Him. Gentiles who were exiled from the presence of God. Those who had not received mercy have now received mercy. Those who were not God's people are now His people, welcomed into His family. Paul pictures Israel as an olive tree in Romans chapter 11. And he pictures it as a tree with a strong and healthy root and trunk, the patriarchs. But the branches, some of them have been broken off because the majority of Israel remains to this day unbelieving. They have not followed their Messiah, and so they've been broken off and and left to die. But in their place, wild olive branches have been grafted in. Gentile believers in Christ have been incorporated into the covenant people. Now, God has power, and He will indeed graft the broken-off branches in again. But Peter's point is that there is one tree that we are incorporated into one people of God in Jesus Christ, the true and faithful Israel, the Son who was obedient. I am struck when I read these verses at how much value God places on the church. God loves His church. And if God places such value on the church of Jesus Christ... We should as well. We should build our lives around the life of the church. Through all the ups and downs of life, through all the turmoil and suffering, through all the disappointments and frustrations, there is one thing that you can count on. And that is that as long as we are able, every Sunday, we will be gathered here in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. We will gather here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and we will taste heaven every time we do. If you want to think about what it takes to sustain faith in this age, that's what it takes. That is what it takes. I can't fix all of your problems. But maybe God's purpose right now is not to fix them. Maybe his purpose is to give you a vision that can see above and beyond them. And in the life of the church, sharers in the blessings of Israel, I think we have that perspective. Peter calls us to remember who we are. We are temples, stones in the temple that God is building through Christ. We are priests who offer sacrifices that are pleasing to him we are destined for vindication at the final judgment. We are sharers in the blessing of Israel. We have to remember these things often, because it's so easy to forget. Almost a year ago, on April uh, sorry, August twenty first, two thousand seventeen, certain parts of North America experienced a total eclipse of the sun. I'm sure, you remember that day. I know some of you were actually in the path of totality that day. You saw the the sky go dark in the middle of the day. Now, if you think about it, it is remarkable that that can happen because by comparison, the moon is nothing compared to the sun. It's 400 times smaller. And yet, everything depends on perspective. From a certain perspective, on that one day for a few minutes last year... There was a moment when the much smaller thing was able to block out the bright, shining reality of the much larger thing. Everything in life depends on perspective. If we begin from the perspective of our experience, if we begin with the thought that life is dreary and mundane, or that we're facing terrible suffering, and that becomes the most prominent reality To us in our minds. And in our consciousness. It can be like an eclipse. The much smaller thing. Can block out the realities. Of the gospel. And in those moments. We can say lofty things. About God and Christ. And redemption and the kingdom. But they may sound like platitudes. That have no real meaning. And if that condition last long enough, we may very well find ourselves on the gentle slope toward hell. This is why we need the Word of God to reorient our perspective. We need God to speak to us afresh Again and again and again about who we are in Christ, because no matter what our circumstances might suggest, the radiant light of the gospel is still there and it is still shining. Lord, give us eyes to see it. If you're not a believer this morning, or you are a believer, but you're not a member walking in covenant relationship to a church, We're about to observe the Lord's Supper. And if that's you, I just want you to to let the the bread and the cup go by this morning. The reason for that is because this meal is for those who are in Christ and those who are demonstrating that through their public accountability to a local church. So if you're not in, in Christ this morning, if you're not a believer, I want to call on you to believe in Him to come to Him in faith and to demonstrate publicly to the world that you belong to Him through baptism. If you are a believer in Christ but not walking with the church, I call on you to, to unite yourself with a church, the designated institution on earth where the authority of Christ is to be exercised over His people. Join yourself to a local church. Come and talk to us about joining this one. But if that's you, I want you to know that Christ welcomes you to come in faith to Him. And we will eagerly welcome you to this table once you have come in the ways I just mentioned. If you are a believer this morning, and you are in good standing with a a church, we ask you to eat and drink. We're going to pass out the bread and the cup in just a moment. We're going to eat and drink together, so uh, you can wait on that. Um, But as we eat and drink, let's reflect once more on the glorious realities of the gospel that have been laid out for us in First Peter today. So would you bow and take a moment of silence as we prepare to hand out the bread and the cup?